Stand by while NCLA cuts through the noise to signal abuse of administrative power. This is Administrative Static with Mark Chenoweth and John Vecchione. Welcome back to Administrative Static with Mark Chenoweth and John Vecchioni, and we are honored to have with us uh, one of our colleagues here at the New Civil Liberties Alliance Senior Litigation Council, Peggy Little. Peggy, welcome back to Administrative Static, and happy birthday. Thank you. Thank you for both uh, having me back, and nice to do this on my birthday. Well, uh, the, the reason that we wanted to, to have you on the program today and talk with you is that you had uh, a very interesting uh, oral argument uh, down in, in New Orleans at the beginning uh, of the week uh, in the U.S. Court of Appeals uh, for the, the Fifth Circuit. And there are, uh, this, this is one case, but there's two separate parties suing the Securities and Exchange Commission. Uh, NCLA is representing the National Center for Public Policy Research, and the, the Boyd and Gray law firm uh, is representing the Alliance for Fair Board Recruitment. We've talked about this, this uh, case on the show uh, before. Essentially, the NASDAQ has adopted a board diversity rule that would require uh, companies to disclose information about their board's self-identified gender, race, and sexual preference. And then it creates a, a, a minimum quota of, of individuals of a certain race, gender, and sexual preference, or else the company has to publicly explain why the board uh, does not meet uh, such quotas, which uh, seems like uh, it uh, seems like multiple constitutional problems uh, there, but uh, but how did the how did the argument go? What uh, what what questions did did you find the judges uh, asking most uh, assiduously, perhaps? <laughs> well, um, the the, ar- the argument was frustrating. Uh, it's always frustrating when you, a panel shows up with their minds made up, uh, and uh, two of the judges did very little questioning, but. Um, we got thrown a bunch of hardballs uh, that weren't actually hard to respond to. It's just that uh, our responses were cut short by the court, and um, they never reached statutory interpretation arguments that we were trying to get them to consider. It, uh, it really was um, one of these roundabout arguments where the panel was uh, looking at the situation from one point of view, and uh, we, the uh, petitioners, were looking at it from another. I would also say it was essentially like we were arguing about two different rules. The, uh, the court seemed to like to look at it. It's, this is just pure disclosure, just information, mm-hmm. nothing else going on here. Mm-hmm. Utterly failing to acknowledge that those um, disclosures, if they do not meet the specified quota, the uh, companies can be delisted. Now, so for our uh, audience that doesn't understand delisting, what does that, what does it mean for a company to be delisted if it can't appear on the NASDAQ exchange anymore? Does that mean it can just walk across the street and get listed on the New York Stock Exchange or, or is it much more involved and complicated than that? It is very much more involved and complicated. Just getting on one of the major exchanges is a huge accomplishment. It takes uh, the investment of uh, many, many years and a lot of money to get listed in the first place. And then when you are threatened with delisting, that is a major 
change. And it's also um, a violation of your liberty. Uh, all companies should, if they otherwise qualify, be able to list on the exchange of their choice. And yet this rule takes that away from them if they do not have what the SEC and NASDAQ, one, one of the exchanges, thinks is the right proportion of women or people who identify as women or uh, underrepresented minorities or um, LGBTQ+. Now, and one of the issues that, that, that seemed that the judges were really uh, uh, spent a lot of time asking about, I'll put it that way, uh, was this idea that NASDAQ is a private entity and therefore there isn't any state action here, that, uh, that, it, that it, it, if this were the SEC adopting the rule directly, then maybe you would have a point, but because the SEC is just sort of uh, nodding approval on this private entity's uh, uh, rule, then that then that makes a difference. So why is that wrong? Why why is there state action uh, Be here? Because by statute, uh, the SEC has to approve all Nasdaq rules, and further, it has to enforce them. Once you bring in government enforcement of this. Uh, uh, organization which claims is private, but in fact it's uh, recognized as quasi-governmental in 1975 when Congress required all NASDAQ rules to be approved by the SEC. It did so because it felt that there was a misperception that, the, uh, that NASDAQ and the other exchanges were self-regulating, and in that legislative history, Congress said no. They, <laughs> This is a uh, partnership in government uh, regulation. Furthermore, NASDAQ and other exchanges have claimed immunity from prosecution because they are governmental uh, agencies and they just can't have a, that both ways. Well, and if I'm in the Lions Club or the, the Rotary Club and they kick me out, uh, and, you know, the government isn't the one that shows up to kick me out, right? I mean, they, right. that's what a true private organization looks like. But but here the government can come and be the one to, to kick you out. That, that, that sounds like state action to me. Absolutely, and there's a precedent right in the Fifth Circuit involving delisting with the American uh, Stock Exchange in which that Court of Appeals said that it is unquestionably um, state action. And that's gonna be a big hurdle for this panel to get around because that's the law of that circuit. And so if the panel were to ignore the law of the circuit on that, would it, uh... Uh, would that create the basis then for potentially taking the case uh, to the full Court of Appeals on Bonk? Absolutely. Uh, the rule is that a, a circuit cannot overrule an earlier panel of the circuit without having the full court make that decision. That's what is done in an on Bonk proceeding. Okay. What, what other issues were uh, was the court focused on in particular? Well, um, the judges said some pretty surprising things. For example, um, Judge Higginson was talking about, well, couldn't the SEC just let people put on whatever crazy information they wanted to disclose and, and make that a requirement? And of course, that quote did not repeat very well in the Wall Street Journal because we're not here to be regulated by uh, agencies that um, demand whatever crazy information <laughs> investors may seem to want to know. Further, the SEC did not engage in independent analysis of, of the findings. And in fact, the SEC said that the studies that had been presented to them 
about whether board diversity improved company um, performance were actually non-inconclusive. In, they did not show such a tie in performance and board diversity. Which suggests if the SEC had adopted these rules itself, that they wouldn't have, uh, they wouldn't have withstood an APA challenge, uh, perhaps if, if the studies didn't support, support it. Uh, putting, to get, putting aside the constitutional problem that would be there if the SEC uh, adopted it directly. Um, Precisely. Yeah. The, the APA, uh, but the APA is the least of it. There's simply no statutory authority for SEC to regulate in this field. Furthermore, say, say more about that, because I think that the, the judges didn't seem to uh, didn't seem to I, I won't say they didn't understand that argument, but they didn't seem to warm to that argument. I don't understand why. But this is based on a 1934 statute that Congress passed. Do the judges think that that back in 1934 that that Congress was very interested in the, the diversity of boards? Were, were there, I mean, forget about LGBTQ or, or race for a second. I mean, how many corporate boards in 1934 had women on? I mean, I, I can't imagine it was very many. No, I, truthfully, I don't think anybody in that room believed that the 1934 Act um, empowered the, the SEC to act in this fashion. Uh, but that was not an argument the court wanted to hear. And that's too bad because the constitutional arguments, which uh, our co-petitioner were raising under the Equal Protection Clause, and then we were also pursuing a compelled speech clause, but you don't have right to- Right under the First Amendment. Right. You don't have to even reach the constitutional question because there is no statutory authority for the SEC to do this. Not only is there no authority in the 34 Act, but the very rule they cite, which is Rule 6B5 of the 34 Act says, and the the commission shall not um, regulate uh, by rules that are designed to reach outside of the uh, operation and um, rules of trading on, on the, the, the exchange. So the point being that the SEC not only conferred some power for them to um, regulate in this field. It also said you don't go outside the bounds of your regulatory authority. Right. Congress didn't give free reign here, uh, which it sometimes does. I mean, we, we have instances where Congress has said very broadly, sort of go, go forth and conquer and FCC do whatever you want, uh, you know, that's in the public interest kind of thing. But that's not what happened here. It said, focus on the exchange, focus on the operation of the exchange and don't do this other stuff. Well, this, this seems a lot like other stuff. Right. And um, that's a powerful argument. Um, we had a, an amicus brief from 17 different states that said that internal uh, governance of corporations is a state law question. And there's uh, authority we cited to the uh, uh, court in the Fifth Circuit that um, state law questions cannot be taken over by Congress unless there's a very clear indication that they intend to do so. And obviously they were not doing that in 1934. But again, the court was really essentially deaf to those questions. And, and, um, and the Supreme Court has said that that federalism concern, you interpret statutes with that federalism concern right there. But I have a, we just have a little bit of time. Can you tell our listeners, why is this compelled speech? And what's the compelled speech aspect of this? Because I don't think it's come across. I agree. Um, if you do not have at least two board seats, one which would go to a woman or someone who identifies a woman, or the second seat to an underrepresented minority or LG, 
LGBTQ+, you have to provide an explanation to the FCC why you do not have that. Um, that helps if they just do back to administrative static. Uh, you know, Mark, uh, on August 26th in the Federalist, uh, our founder, uh, Philip Pamberger, has an interesting article entitled, Can Magistrate Judges Constitutionally Issue Search Warrants Against Trump, parentheses, or anyone else? So he's used the search warrant that was issued against Mar-a-Lago as the hook for this constitutional argument. Um, I had not seen a constitutional argument in it. I don't think we've really discussed warrants or anything like that. Um, but here is the premise of the article. It's that magistrate judges are appointed by the chief judge uh, or, or, or uh, by the judges of a district court, a federal district court. So these magistrates have a term, it's eight years, and sometimes it's 15. So I'm, I'm never sure of that, but I think the bankruptcy judges are 15. 15 for bankruptcy, yeah. bankru or 14, the, one of those. And, yeah, and the magistrates are, are eight years. And um, they are not Article Three judges. We call them magistrate judges. You address them as judges. But only since 1990 or right. so. Correct. Um, and they are allowed to do certain things under statute. Uh, one of the main, their main uses that I see in the civil law is the judges have them do all the discovery. Uh, so dis discovery disputes are constantly taken So the over stuff the judge case. doesn't want to do. Right. And, and also <laughs> things that are very time consuming. Discovery disputes take forever. So um, and and they're the ones, uh, you know, here in D.C., uh, Magistrate Judge Facciola pretty much came up with how we do electronic discovery. He's the guy who, who, who did all that and herded all the cats and made all the rules and got them all approved. So they have a wide use. But. Uh, but they are not Article Three. They can be fired. They do not have a fixed amount of money that they're paid that can be changed by Congress. So uh, the premise of this article is that the uh, allowing them to sign search warrants violates the Constitution because that is a judicial function, and a judicial function cannot be um, delegated. The, the judiciary, particularly in the criminal area, can't delegate it. Now, there has been litigation over what type of criminal matters magistrates can handle. And so if you have a misdemeanor, the current uh, Supreme Court precedent is that if it's under a year, 364 days, you can be put away. Magistrates, by consent, can try those type of cases. Here, uh, uh, Professor Hamburger says that that's unconstitutional. Um, and he, he, he says, why? The judicial power under the Constitution shall be vested in the courts. And that means the, the federal courts, the Article Three courts. It doesn't mean that they can then have, you know, Joe down the corridor, go do their job for them. And so this is uh, this Federalist piece goes through 
things that happen at common law, what the founders were doing when they put the what they when they created the judicial power and put it in these lifetime appointed judges, what were they trying to do? They're trying to insulate them from executive control. And his part of his argument here is that they're not insulated from executive control or congressional control because their their salaries can be changed um, and they can be fired. Now I think they can be fired by the judges, but still. Right. Well, and and more to the point. It might be that they can be fired by the judges, but who's going to potentially hire them to be a full-time district judge? Sometimes no these magistrates are, are elevated. And so who are they trying to curry favor with as they hear these cases? Are the criminal defendants going to appoint them to be future district court judges? Of course not. The executive branch is going to appoint them to be future district judges. So they have every incentive to favor the executive branch in these sorts of, of cases. It, it just It's really a, it's the opposite of an independent uh, structural situation. So I have come up with a question that I have not asked Professor Hamburg. I'm going to ask you, what if Congress gives uh, under a statute joint jurisdiction over state and federal courts and the state courts are elected judges and they have term, they are allowed to sign warrants under state law and they have concurrent jurisdiction. I think that's a difficult problem. So the question is, can, can, is it a problem for federal law to give joint uh, control over those particular enforcement does it, items? Does it impinge on the judicial power? Mm -hmm. I don't know. I, I was thinking about this because I know it's in civil law. I can't think of a crime, though, where there's joint, where there's joint um, uh Authority. Typically, it's an either-or situation, right. not a joint and, and, situation. And it's why you have the dual sovereigns. You right. can be prosecuted twice, right? So I don't know that that exists in the criminal area, but it sure does in the civil area. So, well, I can think of examples where, where uh, I mean, a state prosecutor can prosecute someone for a violation of federal law. Can any? I, I think so. I think so. If it's part of the same case, can they not? I don't think they you think can. They, you think they have to join nope. forces? No, yeah, I do. I, I think it's just the same way that when the FBI comes in, they can they can override through supremacy clause. The FBI takes uh, precedence over the local cops. I mean, anyone who's seen Die Hard knows that. Well, I thought. Well, <laughs> well I was thinking of the situation. Didn't Arizona sue? Well, I, I think that they were told that they couldn't. Yeah. But they were trying to they were trying to sue to enforce some federal Correct. immigration statutes. Correct. But I guess I thought for some reason that that was specific to that context. But you think more generally, I they, do. They can't. So in any event, but still, the the the. Um, I, I, well, let me let me say this. I think I think that if you're talking about a state judge, that one response would be, well, that's that's a matter of state constitutional law. That state has chosen to have judges that way, and the people in that state are governed that way. The problem with the federal magistrates being treated as federal judges when they're not is that that's not consistent with the federal constitution. That's probably the best I can answer you. So uh, Professor Hamburger says that uh, you can challenge these warrants as unconstitutional. Now, these warrants are issued in thousands every day, um, I would think. There's just so many federal laws. There's U.S. attorneys in every jurisdiction. 93, I think. 93, like right. That, different and, jurisdictions around uh, the U.S. And these are just search warrants. A lot of them don't even lead to prosecution. So um, they have someone, it's my understanding, they have like a magistrate on call. So somebody gets the late night shift when they need to search and do something at 3 a.m., you know, 
Yeah. Um, I don't know if it's thousands a day, but certainly hundreds, I would think. Yes, easily. So I, I do think that someone could take this up at any moment and, and challenge uh, search warrant. In front of a magistrate judge? Yeah, I mean, what, right? you don't have you don't have the authority. And I believe that argument would get uh, short shrift. Um, well, I mean, maybe maybe our our listeners don't understand that typically when the government seeks a search warrant, that is an ex parte proceeding. That may, yeah. In other words, the person who they're going to search isn't there to contest it. Uh, you, you have to contest that later, not that not is, before it's issued. That is true, but I will say in the white collar area, they sometimes get a warrant and then the lawyer is there. It's by agreement. Okay. So the warrant comes in, the lawyer's there to monitor the, um, well, in this case, right? The lawyer was there to monitor. Well, uh, sort of. Yeah. They weren't allowed inside, right. which is a right. little fishy. So, but normally in white collar, this is what you do. And and the lawyer can be there and it's by agreement. So you could challenge it you because you'd know about it. So I, and the white collar crowd would be the most likely to have the funds to challenge this sort of thing. Sure. But, um, but obviously in the first instance, the magistrate's not going to buy that. And I, I think there is a structural problem with challenging uh, the constitutionality of this. And that is uh, the judges and the judiciary have relied upon magistrate judges for so long under such uh, that I think they're going to give this uh, a pass. And I even think the Supreme Court has a case where they say that the modern magistrate judge is indispensable, indispensable. That's a bad word when you're trying to get rid of something uh, to the uh, functioning of justice or something like this. And I'm like, that's just bad. Well, that's horrible. Precedent. Judges, law clerks are also indispensable to getting the work of the federal judiciary done. But that doesn't mean a law clerk can sign a search warrant, John. That's true. I agree with that. Um, so we will we will see what happens. We'll see if if this does get challenged. Um, I think that uh, interesting argument, and it's one that is certainly you know I do think that the first the first domino to fall though has to be these criminal um, sentences that the magistrates hand out. The criminal sentencing that is allowed right now for the three hundred sixty four days is even more intrusive and more uh, gathering up the judicial power to really affect people's liberty uh, even more than the search warrants do. Well, and part of the problem there, it's not just that it's in front of a magistrate judge, but you're not, currently folks are denied the right to a jury trial in that situation, Correct. which I think is a is a huge problem. And, yeah. and NCLA is working on that problem. Yeah, that they say, I mean, that is clear constitutional text. There, there shall be a jury in all matters, all. They use the word all. all. I, I mean, it's not. You think indispensable is a good word? I think all is a good all word. All is a good word. And, <laughs> and so uh, I do think that but that domino will have to fall before the search warrants fall because that one has been challenged. And the court in the 60s, when they, you'd think they'd be expanding everybody's rights, said, ah, nah, it's OK. <laughs> and and I, it's really it's really unusual for that period of time when they were saying, oh, everybody's got to have this right, Miranda rights, all this other stuff, but they but they didn't do it for uh, jury rights for criminal trials under under 364 days. And I got to tell you, being in the Crossbar Hotel for 364 days is not going to be fun. No, no, <laughs> uh, no, that's it's not. And and the only thing I can think, John, is that perhaps back at, at that point there weren't that many petty offenses. So you, you know, there, there's this wasn't going to happen very often. Federal but, federal offenses. Federal yeah, federal petty offenses. But now they've been adding about, I don't know, 10,000 of them a year to the regulatory books. So 
now there's a vast array of different things that that someone could be sent to the pokey for you know, right. for a, a year minus a day. And in administrative law, uh, all those administrative rules suddenly become criminal at, at a certain level of uh, mens rea, you know, men, mental uh, uh, pen. Um, and so those become criminal. And some of them have uh, less than a year uh, penalties or $5,000 or whatever it is. Yeah. So yeah, this is right for attacking. And I think under an originalist textualist grounding, it just can't be done. You, you shouldn't... Um, well, and, and this is deliberate. The, the reason that the jury is a bulwark is because it interferes to just willy-nilly throw people in jail. And we shouldn't be making that process. I agree. And so I think that's great.